So, I was all screamed out from last night's ball game, but very screamed out. Ah, roll tide, I get it. Hey, this is about Jesus. Come on. Y'all got, I want to make sure that everybody's got a worship guide. If you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll get one to you because there's some notes. There's some fill in the blanks, and there's a whole bunch of the Bible in there, and so I want everybody to have one. Um, we are uh, finishing up. We're in the last week of a series that we called Redeeming Ruth, and uh, we kind of wa- have walked our way through the book of Ruth, and we're just about finished, and uh, today we're going to be in chapter 4, but here's kind of here's where we've been for the, last, uh, for the last month or so. This book, uh, this narrative in the Old Testament, about eight books in from the beginning, <clears throat> it opens up with Naomi, a lady named Naomi, and... and uh, she and her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they leave Israel, uh, particularly in Bethlehem and Judah. They leave, and they go up and around the Dead Sea into Moab because there's a famine going on in Israel, and so they ran. They ran away, and they decided not to hang out, not to stay, not to weather the storm, so they, they ran, and they ran. And, and when they got there into Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. The two boys married Moabite women. Uh, in a pagan culture, married Moabite women. Then the two sons died, uh, and the, the two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, uh, Orpah decided to go back to her, to her mama and her daddy, to their family. Ruth, the text says, clung. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Clung to Naomi. Ruth pledged devotion to Naomi. Ruth pledged uh, devotion to Naomi's people, and Ruth pledged devotion to, most importantly, to Naomi's uh, to Naomi's God. And so God broke the famine in Israel, uh, excuse me, yeah, in Israel, and, and, uh, and again, Ruth clung to Naomi, and, and they left. God broke the famine, and they left, and Ruth hung out with Naomi. They went back up around the Dead Sea. They came back in to Israel, and their, plan, their, their, their plane lands in Judah, uh, again in Bethlehem. And these two widows find themselves still poor and still widows. But they're back in Israel. They're back in Judah. And the very next day, Ruth goes gleaning, which is gathering kind of, goes gleaning in a field that just so happens. There's a lot of just so happens in the book of Ruth. Um, But she goes gleaning in a field that just so happens belongs to a guy named Boaz. And Boaz was this super amazingly kind kind of man who was also a relative of Ruth's deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And Boaz and his guys, his people, they share a meal with Ruth. And then Boaz makes sure that there's an abundance in the fields for, for Ruth to gather and glean from. She has a really, really good first day. That's the first day they're back in, in, uh, in Judah. She has a really good first day. She gets home. She tells Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law, she tells her all about her great day. And Naomi now is beginning to see, see a light maybe at the end of the tunnel, the fog that she's been in for really been gone about 10 years. That fog has kind of, at least see, she can see that it's kind of starting to clear. She acknowledges that, that the Lord, it was the Lord who broke the famine and, and brought them back into Israel uh, into Judah, and it was the Lord that orchestrated this path crossing of of Ruth and Boaz. And last week, Richard um, 
Richard walked us through chapter 3, really great, in a great way walked us through chapter 3, and that found Naomi acting as a matchmaker, and she sent Ruth to the threshing floor. It's kind of the, <clears throat> the barn floor. Naomi sent Ruth to that barn floor to the feet of Boaz, and she does all of this in a quest for rest for Ruth. Richard did a great job of talking about the rest that we can find in the Lord. And so Ruth at Boaz's feet, kind of awkward, Ruth at Boaz's feet asks Boaz to spread the corner of his, his blanket, the corner of his covering over her. And we all look, our mind going to go straight in the gutter. And we want to make that a sexual thing. It absolutely unconditionally was not. That's injecting 2018 back two, 3,000 years ago. It was not. In fact, the, really the Hebrew text, it's, it's verse 9 of chapter 3, and, and what, it, what, that, what that verse really says is, I am Ruth, your servant. This is uh, verse 9, I think, in chapter 3. I am Ruth, your servant. She's at his feet. Spread your wings over your servant. That's really what the Hebrew says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And, and Ruth is asking to be provided for, to be protected by Boaz. That is a perfect image of me and you at the foot of the cross, begging the Lord to provide for us and begging uh, for him to protect us, to wrap his wings of protection around us. This idea of, of redemption, and, and that's what chapter 4 is really all about in the book of Ruth, is redemption. And so this idea of redemption of the kinsman redeemer, and I think Richard used the language family redeemer um, last week, different translations call uh, him the kinsman redeemer or the family redeemer or the guardian redeemer. And so uh, it's all, all the same thing. But it's brought to light, it's really brought out of the text in chapter 3, and it reaches a pinnacle in what we're going to talk about today. And so she's asking him, wrap those, your wings of protection around me and provide for me. Boaz says, I'll do it. He says, I'll do it, but we got to make sure uh, that there's not a closer relative than me if he'll do it, because that's what the law, that's what the Jewish law at the time said. And so, so far where we are now, the, the takeaways so far are, there's two or three takeaways so far in the book. We'll get to, to what they are in four in chapter four in a minute. First of all, first big takeaway is that God is at work always in, at work in what we may feel like is the worst of times. And God has everything. He created it all. He's got it all at his discretion. It's all at his fingertips. And he is always at work, most of the time probably in the background. Most of the time we probably don't even get to see what he's doing other than in hindsight. Okay? You may feel like... You know, feelings will deceive you too. And you may feel like uh, God, maybe he, you even feel like he has turned against you. Never, ever, ever will he turn against you. That is not in his character. The truth is that he is at work for you, number one. Number two takeaway so far in Ruth is that God's crazy, over-the-top grace, compassion, chesed, is the Hebrew word loving kindness. It is meticulously planned and it gives us astronomical hope for the future. Number two. Number three, 
and this is what Richard talked about last week, is that what God wants for us is he wants us to find rest. And that doesn't mean lay down on the floor and go to sleep rest. That, that's peace. He wants shalom. He wants peace and rest and comfort. That's what he wants to provide for us. And that threshing floor picture is him wrapping the wings, his wings of protection around us to do what? To provide rest for us. And so we're going to wrap this up today in chapter 4. And I know in my heart of hearts that, uh, that God just gets the biggest kick out of providing redemption for folks. And redemption is a, is a Bible word. Redemption has a, a Bible meaning. Redemption assumes that people are trapped in trouble. Redemption assumes and presupposes that we have a problem that, needs, that, that we need to be freed from. So that underlies this whole idea of redemption. And the classic, most classic Bible example of that is, is the Exodus. In the book of Exodus. Isn't it funny how that works? The Exodus is in the book of Exodus. Um, when God set the people of Israel free, been slaves for 400 years, he set them free from Egypt. And in Egypt, what were they? They were slaves. They were, uh, they were oppressed. They were suffering. They were in absolute, total, complete misery. But, but God, but God jumps in and God jumps in and, and, and he acts and he, and he acts through a man and the man that he acts through is Moses. And Moses led the people of Israel after 400 years of, of slavery. He, led, led, he leads them out and uh, he leads them to a land that God provided for them. God so loves redeeming people that that's not the only illustration, not the only example in the Old Testament of redemption. There's, there's bunches of those. Ruth being one of those. Beautiful illustration of God's redemption in the book of Ruth. And that's the climax of this chapter. And look, there, there is a museum, and some of you may have been there, uh, there's a museum in, in Amsterdam, and it's a museum, the Vincent van Gogh Museum, and, and it's got a bunch of, of famous uh, paintings, masterpieces that Vincent van Gogh painted. But in the basement of that museum is, uh, is books and sketchbooks of tons and tons of pencil sketches that van Gogh did. <clears throat> and he would, he would do these in advance of finishing his final masterpiece. And he would do these sketches of, of, of hands and, and fingers and, and, and feet and toes and, and arms and things. And you can see some of them up there. And so, for example, those would be on one of the pages of the sketchbook. You flip the sketchbook, and there's another one, different hands and different, different uh, fingers and, and arms and things. And then the next page, another and another and another. And if you could take that sketch pad, if you could take some of those sketches... And, and lay them against one, a, a character in one of his final masterpieces, it'd be an exact match. And, and Van Gogh, this master, uh, un, one of the greatest painters that ever, that ever lived, he produced those sketches. And those sketches, each one brilliant in their own light. Every one of them brilliant, almost a masterpiece themselves, brilliant in their own light. But they're all done and drawn out in preparation for the final full-color masterpiece. Every story of redemption in the Old Testament is just exactly 
like what you just saw on the screen. While stories like the Exodus and stories in the, in the book of Ruth, beautiful, amazing acts of redemption, illustrations of redemption just themselves. Watch the Ten Commandments. It's, this, it's just a beautiful image. It's a beautiful act of redemption in and of itself. But at the end of the day, they're all illustrations. They're all sketches in advance of and in preparation for the ultimate final masterpiece of redemption, which is found in Jesus Christ and what happened on that cross. Y'all get that? It doesn't mean that those things in the Old Testament didn't happen. For God's sake, that is not what I'm saying. They did. They're sketches to teach people over thousands of years to be looking for what's coming, to see what's coming. I'm a redeeming God. Watch me work over 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4,000 years. They're, they all, they're all the fingers of redemption that culminate on that cross. And so as we look at this, this redemptive uh, narrative in, in chapter 4, we're going to see that Boaz's, uh, what Boaz did uh, for Ruth in chapter 4 is an illustrative sketch just like that. And so we saw in chapter 3, uh, we saw that a kinsman redeemer, Richard taught us this, uh, is a close relative of, of, of a family member who was trapped in a problem. They were in a, they were in a pickle. They had some circumstance. And when the man, you've got to track with what I'm going to say and, and about this kinsman redeemer, this guardian redeemer. When, when the man of a family died without a male heir, back your minds up 2,000 years, 3,000 years, died without leaving a, ma- a male heir, it was vital of utmost importance that the man's family name should be preserved. And so the law in Deuteronomy, the law said that the widow of the dead man, the widow of the dead man should marry her husband's closest male relative. And the child of that union would be the heir for that, the dead, dead guy. Does that make sense? Okay. It was also the case that if a man died without an heir, that his land could be taken over by the nearest, closest male relative. And the details of how that kind of works itself out aren't exactly clear, but it's the backdrop of the first 10 or 11 verses of chapter 4. And as widows, Naomi and Ruth, they needed a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, who would provide an heir, provide an heir to inherit the land that Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, had. Boaz was ideal. But as he told Ruth on the threshing floor literally the night before, he said, there's another dude, I think, that is a closer relative than I am. Let's make sure that he won't take it first, but I'll deal with this in the next day or two. I'll deal with this. In fact, I'm going to deal with it right now, he said. He had committed himself to do that. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says this, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. That's the fourth or fifth time in this book that just as, it just so happened. Can you believe that, that it just, what a coincidence. What I tell you all in the last few weeks, God does not do luck. He doesn't. Do you all get that? that? He said amen. You all can say amen. God does not do luck or happenstance or chance or random. That's not the way he does things. So but the text says just as, just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, you can almost see Boaz, 
this big strapping dude, and he puts his arm around this guy at the city gate, and he said, come on over here, my friend, and let's take a walk and talk. I, that's kind of what I, the way I see it in my mind, like the Godfather or, or something. Y'all are too young to know what the Godfather is, but he takes the guy on a walk, and, and he says, uh, and he says, text this, so he went over and sat down. Boaz wanted this guy who goes unnamed in the text. He wanted him to come along, come over here and sit down, and before he raised that issue with him, he wanted to have a talk. And he starts off in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's going to talk a little bit about the land, but he says, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town, significant number. It took ten men, it's called a minion in Hebrew. It took ten men to make a synagogue. It took ten men, we would almost like say, do we have a quorum today? That's kind of the language we would use. It all, they couldn't do anything without ten men, not women, not women, ten men to do this. And so uh, the, the, the text says, uh, Boaz uh, took the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from, Boaz, uh, from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he knows this guy's a relative, and he knows, obviously he's a, a relative. He said, I thought I should, you can almost hear a little sarcasm, but I don't want to say that Boaz was sarcastic. But he says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, let me know, so I, let, let, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. Right off the bat, the guy says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, you better think about this, bro. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And remember, all throughout this, these three chapters and now into four, forever saying Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the pagan. Might as well be saying Ruth the drug addict, Ruth the alcoholic, Ruth the, the, the whatever. Pick up something that we as fallen people look at as some negative. Constantly says that. So on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. It all seemed an attractive um, sort of proposition to this guy. And so he said he's willing to redeem the land until Boaz informs him that if he took the land, you're going to get Ruth too. And you're going to get the responsibility to provide an heir. You got, you got to have a child with Ruth. And so verse, eight, or excuse me, verse uh, 6 says, At this... The guardian redeemer said, then I cannot do it. I can't redeem her because I might endanger my own estate. Not really sure what that means, but I might endanger. I have some ideas, but that's for another day. I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. And we don't really, really for sure know why that this guy backs out, but it kind of seems like he's perceiving there's some baggage that's going to come along with this acreage, and I don't really want the baggage that's coming along uh, with this land. It's too much for me to take on. And strictly speaking, the law did not force, the law did not obligate in Deuteronomy 25. It didn't force him to do it. The law says you should, but it didn't force him. So for whatever reason, he says the cost is too big, I ain't going to do it. Boaz was different. Boaz was ready to accept that cost. And that illustrates, y'all hear this, that illustrates the way 
that redeemers that God provides, not redeemers that man provides, redeemers that God provides embrace and accept the cost of the redemption. And they embrace it and they, they accept the cost willingly. Number one, willingly. Boaz didn't have uh, any hesitation on taking on this responsibility. Chapter 3 says he's not going to rest until he gets it done. The beginning of chapter 4 says, I'm going to do it this day. I'm going to take care of it today. So they do it willingly. They do it purposefully. Everything Boaz did was, was deliberate, and it was, he thought through it, and, and he didn't leave anything to chance. He made sure everything was done as it should be. So they do it willingly. They do it purposefully. They do it um, faithfully. Everything in everything that Boaz did that day, he was fulfilling a promise. He's a promise keeper. Men be promise keepers. Don't be telling folks stories. You tell your wife something you're going to do, do what you say you're going to do. That's what Boaz is painting that picture for us. He made the promise to Ruth the night before, and then he fulfilled it the very next day. They also are unselfish. They do it unselfishly. It wasn't for his own benefit. He's taken some baggage on. He's taken some burden on. And it was to maintain the name and the property of the dead guy. Every time that we take communion, which we're going to do this month, we remember the costly act of redemption accomplished by Jesus on that cross. It was costly. The cross was costly. It's not cheap. Grace is not cheap. It comes at a massive price. And it was, it's an image. It's, it's just how he willingly paid that price for sinners. With, uh, with Jesus there, there's no sense of his arm being twisted. There's no reluctance in, in what he did. He didn't do anything against his, against his will. He willingly paid the price of redemption for me and you. First Peter. First Peter is a, is a, the way he writes this is so good. He says, for you know, he's talking to these guys, uh, whatever, 1918, excuse me, 1900, 2000 years ago. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It wasn't with, it wasn't money. It wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. It wasn't diamonds. It wasn't jewels. It wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. Jesus paid the price purposefully. The Gospels show us that the, that the cross overshadowed his whole life. The Gospels say he turned his face towards Jerusalem. He was resolute in that. He was purposeful in that. He was determined. He was determined to go to that cross. That's the image that is painted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he got there at the right time. It was Passover time. Through that death on that cross that he could, that he could pay the price necessary to do what? To buy us back. That's what redemption means, to buy us back. And he did it faithfully. He did it in accordance with the, the promises that God made for 3,000 years to redeem us. And he did it unselfishly. It was not for his own benefit, you don't think Jesus jumped on the cross for his own benefit. I hope you don't. That's not what happened. It was for the benefit of the folks that he died to redeem, me and you. All right, so with that said, how does that death on that cross 2,000 years ago, how, how does that provide redemption for me and you today? And the answer is found in, in the second point that Ruth chapter 4 teaches us, and that is 
Redemption is a legal, it was a, it's a legal transaction. There's a legal transaction that took place. The town gate is where that took place. And that's where legal business was, was done. Boaz deliberately gathers the guys, the elders, as witnesses, at least ten. And the narrator provides us in verse 7 of a little bit of background information. And, and here's what that says. It says, now in earlier times, this is going to seem weird to you, in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off their sandal and gave it to the other. That was a method of... of of legalizing transactions in Israel. So if you saw a man hobbling down the road, you know, with one sandal on, you would know that he had either just sold some land or he had just given away the right to to transact on some land. And then verse 8 says, So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. So next, Boaz announces that all of these things, everything that happened had been legal. It had been done uh, the transaction had, had been legalized and it was done in the correct way. Here's why that's a big deal. For Boaz to redeem Naomi and Ruth, the law, and this is the relationship to the cross, the law had to be satisfied, not bypassed, not skirted. The law had to be satisfied. And in his sovereignty, God could have done this much simpler. The story would have been way easier if Boaz had been a brother or if Boaz had been the first in line, the nearest relative. But God doesn't do anything ever without reason because it's connected with God's bigger redemptive plans. It looks like the reason for this twist in this plot in Ruth is to emphasize that for redemption to take place, then the law has always got to be satisfied, not bypassed. The Bible's crystal clear that all of humanity is jacked up and in a pickle from sin. And the law, the law of God demands that sin's got to be punished. And it's got to be punished in, agor- in accordance with God's justice. He can't just overlook sin, y'all. If he, he can't just look at me and say, yeah, I know you did this and this and this and this. We're just going to let it go this time. No. Sin has got to be punished. The just demands of the law, the right demands of the law, they have to be met. And that is what happened. It's exactly what happened as Jesus died on that cross. In his perfection, in Jesus' perfection, he died to satisfy the righteous and just demands of a holy God. Through, Through that cross, do you think the law was bypassed through the cross? No. Do you think it was skirted? Somehow, because of the cross? No, it was satisfied. That cross satisfied the demands of the law. Uh, There was a legal transaction that took place, and it was the satisfaction of the demands of God's righteousness that Jesus proclaimed in John 19 when he said, It's finished. I always struggled with, like, what does that mean? What What that means is that the demands of the law were finished when he died on the cross. And so the law had to be satisfied and not bypassed. And then the completion of that deal, the completion of that transaction, it had to be, uh, it had to be announced and it had to be witnessed. Verse 9 says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite. It's the last time you're going to hear that. Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, 
in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses when houses and cars and motorcycles are bought today. Documents are signed and deeds are signed and those things are recorded in, in, in the courthouse. Why is that? It's got, the deal's been done. It's got to be announced. It's public information. You get that? The nearer relative taken off his sandal, we read that a second ago, was a, was a public decoration that, that the deed had been done. He was declaring that it had been done. And the words of these elders and the, the witnesses that were there, they confirmed that that had been done. When Jesus cried from the cross that it has been finished, it's finished, John 19, that was an announcement that by his death he crossed all the T's, he dotted all the I's, he'd done everything in a legal way to handle everything that he came to handle, to buy me and you back. And it was witnessed by hundreds of folks. The completion of the work on that cross was announced. How was it announced? By the resurrection. The tomb was empty. That was witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people. And now look, what we have in the New Testament is the testimony of all of the witnesses. The testimony of the witnesses, and it's their task to tell us. And they've been telling us this for 2,000-ish years. Redemption was accomplished. God's law was satisfied. It wasn't bypassed. We were there. All these people that are witnesses, they're saying, we were there. I was standing there, and I saw it happen. Yes, and it really did happen. We saw the evidence. We were there. We saw the tomb was empty. We saw a dead guy walking down the road, and they say there ain't no doubt about it. That is what the witnesses of the New Testament tell us. Hundreds and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament they all screaming at us that the tomb was empty and that he really died on a cross and that he really was alive and walking. And we as believers, we put our faith in that announcement by the witnesses of that resurrection and we are eternally redeemed because God's law was satisfied and the justice of God for every sin of every believer, past, present, and future, was satisfied by Jesus on that cross. And it says once and for all, and once and for all says that he doesn't have to keep dying. Don't, don't make your sin so bad that he's got to keep dying. Once and for all means once and for all. That's what the assurance of our salvation is all about. And so that transaction had to be announced and witnessed. And, 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 and big point number uh, two probably is that, that redemption is transforming. From the time that Boaz redeemed her, Ruth had a new identity, a new status, and a new position. She had a new identity, a new status, and a new position. Verse 11. Then the elders, remember I told you, that Ruth the Moabite junk is gone. Verse 11 says, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphratha and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Up to this point, she's been Ruth the Moabite, emphasizing that she was what? She was a foreigner. She was a pagan. Now she's Ruth, the wife of Boaz. She's, now she's what? She's redeemed. Y'all, she is redeemed. She's playing a special part in God's ultimate plan. And the hopes expressed by the words of these folks in verses 11 and 12, they're significant. 
Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob. They were the mothers of all the tribes of Israel. Tamar, like Ruth, was a foreigner. Tamar, like Ruth, was, grew up in a pagan culture. But the people of Bethlehem were descendants of Tamar and her union with Judah. So Ruth would be just like Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. Crazy significant in God's plan. For us, looking back with, with you know, two millennia of, uh, of hindsight, we can see that those high hopes they had, that they weren't vain. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, uh, how many, anybody know how many sons Jesse had? Jesse had eight sons. You know who the scrawniest, whiniest, pick another word that goes in there. You know who, which son that was? David. The exact person that we would not pick. God uses that person. David. Greatest king, ultimately, a whiny, bratty, scrawny little shepherd boy. That's who God picks and says, you know what? I'm going to show out, and that's the guy that's going to be the king of Israel, who's a straight descendant, Matthew chapter 1, of Christ. So the significance of Tamar and Ruth is really brought to light in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Christ. Look, redemption transforms the people who were redeemed. When we're saved, we get a new identity. They just sang, about, sang a song about that a minute ago. Our identity is not in, I'm a doctor. My identity is not in, I'm a pastor. My identity is not in, I'm a soldier. My identity is not in, I'm a drug addict. My identity is not in, I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. My identity is not in, I've been a terrible husband. Or my, my identity is not in, I've been a terrible wife. I've been a terrible father. Y'all, that is a lie from hell. And that, but that is what he is screaming in your, eel, in your ear. I am who, who says I am. I'm not who you say I am. I'm not who I say I am. I am who God says I am. And who does he say I am? I'm, a, I'm his child. And he wants, to, he wants me to rest underneath his wings. We become a part of the bride of Christ. Our identity is in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that we've been bought with a price. And every one of us that name that name become a member, part of the family of Ruth and Boaz through the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the Lord Jesus, God's plan pushes ahead. The gospel is advancing always. It never stops moving. We can get on the train or we can not get on the train. But the gospel is going to advance. And he's constantly buying folks back. And he wants to buy you. And he wants to buy you. And he bought you and he bought you and he bought you. It's like Black Friday or Cyber Monday up in here or something. He wants to buy, don't be for sale though, but he wants to buy you back. And you are expensive. Do y'all get that? You are diamonds in God's eyes. The cost of that cross was massive. And then he looks and he says, you're worth it. And you're worth it. And I want to buy you and I want to buy you. So that's like the transformation that happened with Ruth. And then there's a transformation that happens uh, with Naomi. Boaz and Ruth, they're married, and the narrator wants us to know that the birth uh, of a son to Boaz and to Ruth was that it was the Lord's doing. It's odd language in verse 13. It says, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. It's odd. The way that's worded is odd for the Old Testament. But the, it's a surprise, the shift, the, the, 
there's a shift in, in emphasis from Ruth to Naomi now, and we're told uh, what the women said to Naomi. Remember back in chapter 1, remember back in chapter 1 when they show up in, in Bethlehem, all the town's women, they said, can this be Naomi? She is looking skank. Now, you, I don't know that you're supposed to say that in church. The truth is, they, that's, they see her. She'd been life had wore her out for 10 years. Husband died, sons died, <clears throat> married pagan women. Then they died, famine. There, she's looking skank, and that's what they said. That's probably not what they said. That's what they thought. Verse 14, though, says, The women said to Naomi, she's got a new identity, though, now. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Redemption transforms and it renews our lives and it gives us hope for the future. And when, when Naomi first returns to Bethlehem from Moab, she, she had zero hope for the future. Zero. Not a little bit. She had zero hope for the future. But through the Lord's chesed, his loving kindness, his, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, he provides her with a redeemer. And her life was restored. And the child that you're going to see sitting in her lap, just like that, just like that, this, this sweet little baby is sitting in, in her lap. She sees hope, like eternal hope she sees in that child sitting in her lap. All of that is pointing straight to Christ. He is a redeemer that renews our lives. He's a redeemer that, that gives us hope for the future. Every single person he redeems has hope for a future. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of who? David. Obed means servant. Apart from this, we don't know anything else about Obed. We know that he was born to be a, a servant of God's redemptive purposes. Y'all, the Bible is a redemptive history. It's not a history of every event that ever happened on the planet. It's not. It's not. It's a story of God's quest to buy us back. From page one, it's a story of God screamingly, lovingly trying to buy us back. Just like it's an image of Christ. And Mark says he was the servant, that he was a servant of the Lord who came not to be served, but serve and to give his life a ransom. The story of Ruth begins with her family's rebellion and fear because they didn't hang out with the famine. And they suffered some bitter consequences from that. They went their own way instead of God's way. But it ends with renewal in the life of Naomi and with others rejoicing in, in, in the kindness that God shows her. And the kindness that he shows her was by providing a kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that she needed. Boaz was tailor-made for Ruth. Y'all get that? Jesus is tailor-made for every one of y'all. 
all of her hope, all of Naomi's hope was focused on the son that was born. Just as the hope of every Christian on the planet is focused on the son who came to be a redeemer. The whole book of Ruth, the whole and particularly this genealogy is to show us that in the really nasty days, y'all remember I told you in chapter 1, this was the worst time in Israel's history. Nasty, ugly days of the judges. Absolute worst time in Israel's history. God protects the line in His sovereignty. The chosen line is preserved. God preserves it. Not men, not heroes, not, not with some heroic kind of acts, not human deliverers, not kings, not even King David that God anoints, but by His good hand and His protective wing. Here's the takeaway for today. Just as Boaz willingly, faithfully, purposefully, unselfishly redeemed Ruth, Jesus willingly, purposefully, unselfishly, faithfully paid the price, endured the the cost of the cross to rescue me and you from the pickle that sin trapped us in. And here's what we call that. We call that the great exchange. This is talking about Black Friday, Cyber Monday up in here. The great exchange. He gets our sin and we get his righteousness. That's like 99% off or something. Y'all understand that? That is, there, there has never been a better deal on, Walmart ain't even got a better deal than that. Look, he gets our sin, we get his righteousness. For 200 years, that has been called the great exchange. I'm going to say it's the greatest exchange ever. Nothing could ever be as good as that. uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake. It doesn't say for his sake. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He gets our sin. He jumped on the cross sinless. He gets our sin. So, Made him to be no sin who knew, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This whole book is about that great exchange. It is woven from page one until the end of Revelation. It is a story. It is a book that is screaming at me and you. It's God hollering at us. I want to buy you back. I don't care what you've done. Well, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. Well, no, you really don't know what I've done. I've done some bad stuff. He says, I don't care. I jumped on the cross for that. Don't make your sin so bad. I died for it, he says. Don't make yours worse than mine. People do that all the time. You just I had a dude telling me over and over, you just don't know what I've done. I said, no, dude, you don't know what I've done. Don't act like yours worse than mine. God didn't die for the right and die for the well. He died for the, for the sick. That is the greatest exchange that ever happened. And so here's what I want to tell you. If that happened, let, let today be the day. If you walk and you hadn't taken advantage of the well, if you hadn't taken advantage of the cross, let that exchange that happened account for you today. You got that account for you.
It's not going to count for you. If you don't let it, you got to say yes. Offer's there. And so I'm, I'm begging you to do that today. It'll change your life. It'll transform your life. It'll transform your perspective on everything. And there's no consequences to sin. Here in Lord, say there's not. And Naomi Naomi still a widow. But she felt full. The text says she felt full. She arrived in Bethlehem empty and, and, and she now in a two or three days' time. I want you to have the The Lord wants you to have the full. Y'all pray with me. If that happened to you today, I want you to pray this out loud. I want you to come down here if you want to. We got folks back there that, that would love to pray with you, but if that happened today, that the great exchange does count for me. Today is the day that, uh, that I want to make you and am making you the leader and forgiver of my life. Lord, today is the day that, that your, I want your Holy Spirit to live inside of me. Today is that day, Lord. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name.